Hello and welcome to The Alchemical Mind. Today we are going to be talking about the Hermetica, and this will be part one of a two-part series. It might be longer than that depending on how long this particular episode and the next one takes, but uh, I do plan on doing at least two of these Hermetica episodes. And the reason I wanted to touch upon the Hermetica is because it really sets up a basis for a lot of philosophy and theology, I would say throughout much of written history. Now, depending on who you ask, you can get different dates depending on uh, when someone feels like the Hermetica was written. There's, you know, accounts of it going back 4,500 years. The general mainstream view is that it was written somewhere between the 1st and 3rd century and that it's kind of a Greek-Egyptian work of that particular era. I don't like to get too bogged down with the particulars on this kind of thing for the simple reason that when I dive into a text like the Hermetica, I'm more interested in the symbology and the th themes that are presented within the work. So this is kind of the, the first big philosophical work that I'm going to be touching upon in this podcast. I've, I've talked about a couple of the ones previously, but never as in-depth as I'm going to be doing with the Hermetica. And the reason I say that is because the origins of this particular work are important, but I think we often get bogged down a little too much by where something comes from and try to make appeals for, well, you know, the language here states that it's from this particular era, so I must relate to this culture and that culture. And I think that's a very narrow-minded way to look at human history. At some point in the future, I'm going to dive really deep into Christian esotericism and Christian mysticism. And this will really serve as a basis for that. Because, you know, and this is not a new idea either, but a lot of Christianity and, and really... The, the major monotheistic religions of the world, so Christianity, Judaism, and Islam, are really based upon this ancient sun cult that uh, can be dated back to Egypt for sure, and I'm sure in many respects dates back much, much further than that. I haven't done a whole lot on astrology and astronomy and, and that kind of symbolism. I'm going to touch upon it a little bit as I, as I dive through uh, the different aspects of the Hermetica. But there is, there's a lot more to these religious ideas that have become so entrenched in our culture that really a lot of people don't understand what it means. So I, I often talk about you know, walking a path and knowing a path. And in order to really know a path and make your own path, you have to understand where ideas come from and how they develop over time. So the Hermetica kind of serves as a, a good base for that because it has had such a great impact on Western culture for thousands of years. In some respects, you could even say that the Hermetica is responsible for the Renaissance, or at least a large part of the Renaissance, because really the Renaissance begins to really kick into high gear uh, roughly around the time when the Hermetica was first discovered in the West by the Medicis and translated into, I assume Latin, it might be Italian because the Medicis were in Italy, uh, but I would assume Latin because, you know, we're talking late 1400s here, and so Latin was still widely used as kind of a lingua franca throughout Europe and much of the Western world. So it was a, as a result of this translation that uh, you know, we got some really great Christian thinkers coming around and using some of these ideas that had been lost for a very long time. You know, there's a reason why these these times were called the Dark Ages, and it wasn't because it, you know the sun wasn't coming out. It was because we had lost a lot of ancient knowledge that really helped culture thrive and develop throughout you know, many many centuries. And, and sure, like, yes, the Roman Empire had fallen, so that's part of the contribution. Uh, you know, the Greeks, the, the Egyptians, all that was going away. There were, quote-unquote, you know, pagan or foreign invaders coming in and taking over the high culture of, of Europe. 
Uh, of course, I'm doing all this in quotes because you know it's it's all perspective. It's all relative. And and it was with the discovery of some of these hermetic texts that we really got some brilliant people coming to the forefront and and rediscovering ideas. You know, like uh, Giordano Bruno. Um, a lot of these guys that were were key in helping develop Christian philosophy during the Middle Ages, uh, also leading into alchemy, which of course leads to the scientific process as a result with chemistry and, and other kinds of sciences. So really, really key, important text that we're going to be discussing uh, over a few episodes. And again, there'll be at least two. Uh, I'm looking over this book right now, and it's it's a very small book that I have, and I'll talk about the edition here in a second. But uh, it might be three or four. We'll, we'll see how this one goes. I am using a particular translation of the Hermetica. This is the Hermetica, the Lost Wisdom of the Pharaohs by Timothy Freak and Peter Gandhi. It's a relatively small book. You can get much larger versions of the Hermetica, which include many more texts. The particular reason why I'm choosing to read out of this edition, and I do have three different editions of of the Hermetic Guide in my library is because number one it is short and the reason that it is short is that it combines multiple pieces of the Corpus Hermeticum the the larger uh, literature of the Hermeticism into uh, a cohesive story so a lot of these chapters are oftentimes created translated from uh, multiple stories that dive into the same topics or that tell the same story but in different language kind of like you would see in the bible with the uh the four gospels the four canonical gospels many of the stories and and anecdotes and things like that that are told in the four gospels are really just retellings of things that you see in other gospels so this is kind of the the idea behind this translation is to take some of these different interpretations and make a, a cohesive story out of them, because some of these stories are not complete, for one, and, and you translate them into simple, modern English, which I really like. Of course, you, know, you could argue that some of this mystical ideas, some of this uh, esotericism, really can't be told through simple language because they're heavily imbued with symbolism. And you know, I always talk about the importance of language and understanding language and, and the meaning of words. So yes, some of that I think does maybe get lost in a simplified translation. But I think uh, in order to convey the point, to give you kind of a, a starting point on the Hermetica, this is actually a really fantastic way to do it. And if you like this simple translation, then by all means, go and and read something that's uh, a little a little more dense, if you will. If you do pick up a copy of this book, it does tell you kind of the different texts that are combined to create each chapter. So I do recommend you go over that so you can see what the source reference material is. And uh, again, I think I did the uh, I think the translators did a really good job at uh, at creating this this particular version of the text because uh, it does make it much, much simpler. Now, I'm not going to start off at the beginning. Uh, this actually begins with kind of the, the prophecy of, of Hermes from the Poimander. And uh, I'm going to kind of skip that, because there is a, a fantastic reading of this particular story by Graham Hancock. I will probably include it in one of the episodes, maybe the last one, because I think uh, a prophecy for the future kind of... Uh, Will fit nicely in, in the book and episode for this and uh, you can find it on YouTube you can find it on Graham's website he does a really good job of talking about this because it talks about some really interesting and intriguing ideas uh, that Hermes prophesizes deep in the past in human history uh, basically about you know Egypt losing its its, la its language and its gods and its religion and its knowledge and its science and being replaced by foreigners that are kind of Egyptian in name alone and things like that. Uh, really fascinating stuff. And uh, rings very true to a lot of things that people talk about with regards to these kind of topics of you know ancient philosophy and mythology and lost civilizations and things like that. So I will post that in one of the episodes and uh, you can check that out as well. 
So let's get started on this book. And, and the first chapter I'm going to read is The Initiation of Hermes. Now, the way I'm going to do this is, you know, if you want to read along, by all means, uh, I'm going to kind of read bits of each passage and kind of dive a little bit into the meaning of what Hermes is saying in each of these passages. And if you're not familiar with Hermes, uh, he's gone by many names, you know, for Hermes would be the Greek name. Uh, you have uh, different cultures appropriated Hermes in different ways. Hermes Trismegistus, uh, so Hermes the Thrice Greatest, is kind of the the more common full name of, of that Hermes is referred by. And this is why this is called the Hermetica, because these are all texts. They're, they're conversations uh, between Hermes and another person about the... The structure of reality, the, the origin of mankind, the purpose of mankind, and uh, really, really fantastic. So as, as we go through these chapters, I want you to think about your generally accepted ideas of Western philosophy and religion. So again, the Judeo-Christian, Islamic uh, religions would be the most common in the West. Uh, so think about those things, but think about how much of the things that we're going to be talking about relate not just to, to philosophical ideas of the West, but to the East as well. Because in many regards, a lot of the things that the Hermetica talks about are kind of fusions of Western and Eastern idea. And for those of you that are often like, well, you know, I'm a Christian, so you know, why would I meditate or you know, do this, that, and the other? These things have nothing to do with your particular religion. Religion is just a story that we tell ourselves uh, to kind of abide by whatever culture we live in. The, the trueness of any religion is much deeper than just culture and dogma. And I talk about this all the time. There's a difference between religion and mysticism. Religion is walking the path, and mysticism is knowing the path. So in order for you to truly understand what your religion is telling you, you need to understand where it comes from and how it develops. And I think this is a fantastic example of how that goes. Like always, there may be things that I talk about on this episode you may not agree with. These are maybe my own findings on the topic, but I hope you will at least give them some thought and see how you can implement those things in your own learning experience and your experience of, of religion and philosophy and just being itself. So the first one we're going to read is The Initiation of Hermes, and this is kind of Hermes going into a trance, having a, uh, a mystical experience, and meeting a tomb, the, the supreme god. And, uh, of course, this does kind of deal with a particular aspect of Egyptian religion and philosophy, because a tomb would have been, you know, you might refer to him as a tomb Ra, or maybe just Ra, is uh, kind of related to the Heliopolis religion of Egypt. There have been different centers of religion in Egypt, but uh, Heliopolis seems to be the one that we're talking about here because we're focusing on a tomb. My senses were suspended in mystic sleep, not a weary, full-fed drowsiness, but an alert and conscious emptiness. Released from my body, I flew with my thoughts, and while I soared, it seemed to me a vast and boundless being called my name. Hermes, what are you looking for? Who are you, I asked. I am the way guide, the supreme mind, the thoughts of a tomb, the one God. I am with you always and everywhere. I know your desires. Make your questions conscious and they will be answered. Now start seeing some of the parallels here between other monotheistic systems of belief. And a tomb is the one God, always with you. He's here, he's there, he's everywhere. And he always knows what you need. All you got to do is ask and he will give it to you. That's a, that's a pretty powerful statement, and we have that as kind of one of the, the key aspects of Christianity, right? In the service of the Mount, we have, uh, we have that very thing, seeking you shall, shall find, right? Asking you shall receive. Show me the nature of reality. Bless me with knowledge, a tomb, I begged. Suddenly everything changed before me. Reality was opened out in a moment. And the boundless view all became dissolved in light, united within one joyous love, Yet the light cast a shadow, grim and terrible, which passing downwards became like restless water. 
chaotically crossing or chaotically tossing forth spume like smoke, and I heard an unspeakable lament, an articulate cry of desperation. The light then uttered a word which calmed the chaotic waters. Now here, Hermes is basically seeing the creation of the universe, right? God said, "Let there be light," and there was light. This is what this is what we're getting here. This is the same story. My guide asked, "Do you understand the secret of this vision?" I am that light, the mind of God which exists before, the chaotic dark waters of potentiality. Now this is really interesting. I love I love the language used here because this kind of dives into some of the, the scientific aspects that uh, if you dive really deep into uh, are very similar to religion. And, you know, I've talked before about how I hate when uh, <laughs> I'm doing it right now, but I'm going to do it anyway. I hate when... Uh, you start intermingling new age ideas and use physics as a a crutch to explain a particular thing. Uh, we see this a lot with uh, like the secret, for example, right? Um, and of course, there's there's ways of looking at this through uh, an Eastern eye, like a Buddhist eye, where the world is an illusion because that's what physics tells you. And and again, I hate to do that kind of thing, but think about the similarities here and now I haven't really talked about this too much but I've been I've been really thinking about this a lot as I've been diving a lot into Egyptian magic and demonology and into uh, various sun cults around the world uh, including the ones in Egypt and and others more modern ones like Christianity uh, again you don't have to agree we'll get there at some point uh, but do your own research and and I found it really interesting when, when these kind of words are, are used and tossed around because this tells you exactly how the world is. The world is just potential. There's nothing outside that's truly real in there. A tomb basically creates everything whenever you decide to look at it. When a tomb gives the word is when your particular perspective takes a look at an aspect of creation and turns that potential into a physical thing. My calming word is the Son of God. The idea of beautiful order, the harmony of all things with all things. Primal mind is parent of the word. Just as in your own experience, your human mind gives birth to speech. Again, this is kind of that, that idea that we talk about all the time, right? Tatavamasi, you are it. Where Quite literally, if you want to use those words, you can say that you literally are God because that's what you're doing all the time. You are constantly creating the the world outside, what you feel is outside of you. And uh, I've I've dove into that particular topic many a time, so let me not uh, let me not repeat myself. Let's continue. They cannot be divided one from the other, for life is the union of mind and word. Now fix your attention upon the light and become one with it. Again, here's the idea of the relation between mind and word, right? So in the Bible, you have something like, you know, God said, let there be light, and there was light, right? God is just giving a command. If you dive into some of the interesting mystical traditions of Christianity, and, and Judaism, I think, is more popular. Uh, I'm not sure if that's because I think maybe Christians don't want to accept the the level of mysticism and esotericism and and pagan ritual that is entrenched into Christianity because if you begin to realize some of those things you might begin to realize some of these other stories may kind of just be stories okay we'll, we'll leave it at that that'll be the nice way to put it but uh, you know we get a lot of this mystical stuff with with words and symbologies through Kabbalah if you ever look at the ideas behind Kabbalah and of course alchemy which stems directly from some of these Christian ideologies in the Middle Ages and you know, stemming back to, to other systems, including Hermeticism. But words are, words are very important, right? And uh, I, I was reading a really fascinating article recently about uh, Sanskrit, for one, and the other one was uh, about Hebrew itself and the, the numerology behind these, uh, these languages. And... The interesting correlations between why certain letters are used to denote particular meanings, why certain words are formed in particular ways, and 
you know, of course, Hebrew is a Semitic language, as is Egyptian, the original Egyptian. And certainly there's a lot of numerology within uh, ancient Egyptian language as well. Okay? And they are very much related. Uh, you can dive into many, many different rabbit holes here with this. Uh, some interesting ones that I've seen lately are relationships between uh, very early Judaism and, uh, and, and Egyptian history. I'll let you find those rabbit holes. Maybe we'll talk about them at some point. When he had said this, he looked into me, eye to eye, until trembling I saw and thought limitless power within the light to form an infinite yet ordered world, and I was amazed. I saw in the darkness of the deep chaotic water without form, permeated with a subtle intelligent breath of divine power. Tomb's word fell on the fertile waters, making them pregnant with all forms. Ordered by the harmony of the word, the four elements came into being, combining to create the brood of living creatures. Now this is interesting. I talked a little bit about the relationship between uh, mathematics and language and geometry when I was on uh, Mindscape, uh, when I was talking a little bit about that. And I, I talked about it as well in the episode where I discussed my, uh, my psychedelic trip from a year and a half ago or so, where I talked about uh, the, the magic of the triangle in relation to Pythagoras and to the Egyptians. You know, sometimes we feel like a particular country created something, and maybe it's because the available evidence we have j just points to that thing. But I don't think any of these ideas are necessarily Pythagorean or Egyptian or anything like that. Um, I, I mentioned this on Twitter a couple days ago where I feel like – who was I talking to? As a matter of fact, I was uh, going a little back and forth with the Snake Brothers, uh, Brothers of the Serpent, and uh, Bruce Fenton a little bit later on. Talking about the Avestas, uh, the Zoroastrian text, and its particular flood myth. Uh, it's not a flood story. It's uh, actually really weird because they go in underground bunkers um, to survive an ice age. And uh, the more I dive into Egyptian numerology and demonology and magic and look at stories from other cultures in the general area uh, in the Middle East and uh, and Eastern Europe, I I find a lot of similarities, and and of course you know this this is not a, a particular thing to me. Uh, I'm sure none of these ideas are new. Uh, what's the saying? There's no new ideas. Uh, it's just retellings of old ideas. Uh, to me, like this is what it feels like. It seems pretty obvious to me. The deeper I go into these subjects and and try to find the inspiration for a particular thing, so I go back further to a text that inspired it and, and look at related cultures, that the knowledge that we're getting from a text like the Hermetica or many other ancient sources are really stories that come from a pre-Ice Age culture. And some of them survived intact, and some of them were kind of changed a little bit. Um, I think I've talked before about the story of Isis and Osiris, but uh, you know, really interestingly, at the end of that story, the the way that it's worded basically tells you, like, hey, as a result of Set taking over, uh, we lived through very dark times and it was very cold. Uh, it was an ice age, basically. And you know, after Horus and and Set fight, the sun returns and uh, we're not stuck in this ice age anymore. I find you know passages like that really interesting. Obviously, they don't use the word ice age, right? But uh, I find passages like that interesting. And I think that's really true. I think based on the, the astronomical levels of ingenuity that the ancients had on astronomy and astrology and engineering principles, to me there's no way that this is something that's developed over a couple of hundred years leading up to a dynasty, right? And since we're talking about Egypt, the Hermetica, we'll just say Pharaonic Egypt. It just seems preposterous that they would know that a particular age of the zodiac lasted, you know, 2100 and some, some odd years. Uh, the number changes depending on the culture, right? So I think in the Americas, uh, the Maya had it at uh, 2125, I think it was. Uh, the Egyptians had roughly 2160, which I think is the closest number. Um, a couple other cultures had it at, uh, you know, the Chinese, I think, had it at 2150. So 
I guess you could theoretically do the mathematical work to figure out how long it would take for a particular constellation to uh, cross over the sky in order to get to the next constellation. That's certainly possible. But the only way for you to know that would be, number one, to have witnessed 12 different constellations in the sky. And, uh, and number two, to have some very advanced mathematics in order to figure that out. So you'd have to know geometry and trigonometry. And at that point, we're kind of back to square one, where either this was developed by observation through, you know, a hundred and... How, how long would that take? 24,600 years, right? Something like that. 26,400 years. Uh, either observations through that amount of time or through some very slick mathematics. And the very slick mathematics are the same mathematics we use today to create the modern world. So think about these things when you really dive into the stuff because these are not stupid people. These are not ignorant people. Uh, you know, they don't worship uh, a bull because... Uh, bulls are strong and powerful. They worship bulls because the sun comes up when the sun is in the star of uh, the, the the constellation of of Taurus, right? Jews don't blow the ram's horn in the morning because uh, it's cool to blow a ram's horn. I mean, yes, it makes a great trumpet, but the tradition comes from when the sun rose through Aries. So you you have to understand these things and make connections if you really want to understand what's going on. Because, yes, these are stories, but they have deep, occult, esoteric meaning. And if you really want to regain your authority, the way to do it is for you to understand that meaning. Otherwise, people can continue to lie to you, and you live your entire life believing fairy tales. All right, enough with the rant. We're going to come back to that quite a bit, by the way. Uh, I don't know when I'm going to get to esoteric Christianity, but uh, that'll be really interesting. I might lose a lot of listeners when we get there. A tomb's word fell in the fertile waters, making them pregnant with all forms. Uh, I want to just touch briefly here, because that's important. A tomb is a, a male figure. right? It's a, a masculine essence. And this is not... <laughs> I, I, I hear so much. It's because they were in a patriarchal society. Yes, this is true. They were in a patriarchal society. But... The patriarchal society comes from this idea of a male divine figure and not necessarily the other way around. Okay? It's the same reason why people believe fairy tales that they read in any particular sacred text without understanding the real meaning of it. The god in the sky is almost always a male figure. The god of the earth is almost always a female figure. And the reason for that is very simple. There is one very primal instinct that we have as human beings, and that is reproduction. And so it is obvious for humans that when the springtime comes and the sun rises, okay, and it starts getting warmer, and the rains start falling, that the earth sprouts with new vegetation. And when humans copulate, that's basically what's happening. I don't want to get too graphic here. Okay, but this is this is this is sex metaphor. Okay, that the God in heaven is ejaculating down onto Mother Earth and causing life to arise. Okay, and so as a result, the creator figure becomes a male figure, not a female figure. All right, let's continue. The fiery element was articulated as the constellation of the stars and the gods of the seven heavenly bodies. Now these are the planets. These are not true gods, okay? These are not beings in the sky, okay? They are the beings in the sky are metaphors for the planets. Revolving forever in celestial circles. So there you go. The word, then, the word then leapt up from the elements of nature and reunited with mind the maker, leaving mere matter devoid of intelligence. My guide said, you have perceived the boundless primal idea which is before the beginning. By a tomb's will, the elements of nature were born. As reflections of this primal thought. In the waters of potentiality, there are the primary things, the prior things, the first principles of all the universe. Now, for you alchemists, remember the prima materia. Prima materia is mind. Okay, that is the first element. A tomb's word is a creative idea, the supreme limitless power which nurtures and provides for all the things that through it are created. 
I have shown you everything. Why do you wait? Write the wisdom you have understood in hieroglyphic characters, carved on stone in the holy sanctuary. Make yourself a spiritual guide to those worthy of the gift of knowledge. Now, this is not a physical sanctuary. I mean, yes, it becomes one when mysticism becomes religion. But if you ever dive into some of these, uh, you know, I, these stories that you get, like in the Bible, where someone enters a city, the city is not an actual city. It is your, your mind. So a tomb is asking Hermes to remember the things that he has learned during this mystical trance. To those worthy of the gift of knowledge, so that through you a tomb may save humankind. Now, why he needs to be, why humankind needs to be saved, we'll talk about that later. I was overwhelmed with gratitude to the All Father. Now, interesting that the word here is All Father, because this is common throughout all of Western traditions. Okay, the Germanic tribes had the All Father, right? Odin, God the Father is Almighty. Okay, remember these things who had graced me with the supreme vision. In awe and reverence I prayed, please never let me fall away from this knowledge of your being, so that I may enlighten those who are in darkness. Then with this power in me I began to speak. The aloof laughed at my words, but others knelt at my feet. Okay? This is, now we're getting to religion. Okay? Now we're getting to religion. This happens all the time. It happens all the time. When Moses goes up to the mountain and gets the Ten Commandments, comes back down and what are they doing they're worshiping the golden calf okay because it's they're in the age of taurus of course the golden calf okay this is what happened with with hermes hermes gets the wisdom of the one true god and comes back to earth and people think he's crazy of course they do others knelt at my feet i told them to stand and receive the seeds of wisdom which i will sow in you with these teachings now remember all this metaphor right we're using we're using the metaphor of agriculture because, well, it's an agricultural society. So listen, men of clay. Hmm, interesting that clay is used, right? In the Bible, what is Adam made out of? If you do not pay keen attention, my words will fly past you and wing their way back to the source from which they came. Now, this is true of all esoteric teachers, right? There are people who listen and people who don't. And there are people who listen and there are those who understand. Okay, so we have th three different classes of people. If you listen, that's great, but do you understand what's being said? If not, those words go back to a tomb. All right, let's talk about a tomb a little bit. What's 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 a tomb about? Give me your whole awareness and concentrate your thoughts. What does it sound like? Okay, this sounds like prayer. Sounds like meditation. Sounds like contemplation. Sounds like mindfulness exercise. For knowledge of a tomb's being requires deep insight, which comes only as a gift of grace. It is like a plunging torrent of water whose swiftness outstrips any man who strives to follow it, leaving behind not only the hearer, but even the teacher himself. To conceive of a tomb is difficult. This is important. Define him is impossible. This is actually almost word for word the, the way that Pseudo-Dionysus the Arapagite describes God. And, and many Sufi mystics also describe God in very much the same way. So, you know, I talked about Su uh, Sufism a little while back when I discussed the poetry of Rumi. If you have not gone and read some Sufi literature, do yourself a favor and go and do that. Because you'll find a language very similar to this. The imperfect and impermanent cannot easily apprehend the internally perfected. Of course, we've talked about this. You are just one perspective of an infinite mind. If you understood every perspective, you would be that infinite mind. A tomb is whole and constant. In himself, he is motionless, yet he is self-moving. He is immaculate, incorruptible, and everlasting. He is the supreme, absolute reality. He is filled with ideas which are imperceptible to the senses. And with all-embracing knowledge, a tomb is primal mind. He is too great to be called by the name a tomb. He is hidden, yet obvious everywhere. I love that symbology of... The, the one true deity, okay, well, God or primal mind, being hidden but everywhere. This is one of the arguments used for people of faith, right? Well, how do you know that God exists? Well, I have faith that God exists. Well, you can't see God. Well, that doesn't mean God's not there. You just can't see God. But if you really look closely, you see God everywhere. Because if God is infinite and all-encompassing, 
that means that God creates all things. And so, you know, the chair that I'm sitting on is God, and the computer in front of me is God, and the book that I'm holding in my hand is God. And you're God, and I'm God, and we're all God. My dog is God. I love talking about my dog. Shout out to Sandy. Sandy and I had a great conversation about my, my little puppy. And uh, I think Sandy and I are going to have a discussion on why brains do not exist. That'll be very interesting. I hope uh, you guys will tune in for that. His being is known through thought alone, yet we see his form before our eyes. He is bodiless, yet embodied in everything. That's beautiful. There is nothing which he is not. He has no name, because all names are his name. He is the unity in all things, so we must know him by all names and call everything a tomb. Hey, this is that same idea we talk about all the time. Everything is one, right? And everyone hates that. Oh, yes, so lovely. We're all one, one happy human family, one world. But it's true, and that's what Hermes is saying. So let's continue. I'm getting excited because I, I love this book. This is one of my this is one of my favorite texts, sacred texts ever, because so much comes from it. He is the root and source of all. Everything has a source except this source itself. Uh, depending on the tradition, a tomb kind of came about in different ways. Uh, he's always self-created, uh, basically created out of his own word, out of the primordial waters. Uh, so that's that's kind of interesting because, you know, well, if he came out of the primordial waters, where will the primordial waters come out of? Uh, that's that's interesting. We can get to some comparative theology uh, at some point in the future and talk a little bit about that. But uh, this is basically the God that has created all of existence. So really the primordial waters are, are kind of irrelevant here uh, in, in many regards. Because in, in any kind of theory of everything that you come up with you're always going to have kind of that that one basic lie that you have to believe in okay uh, this is true for any philosophy ideology scientific principle anything you know you can take this to science and say well okay so the world you know the whole universe came from the big bang well you know where did the big bang come from right was there something here before and if you're a materialist i mean inherently there has to be something before because you can't have something coming out of nothing oddly enough if you dive deep into some very advanced physics something comes out of nothing all the time and this is what we see in a lot of these philosophies that something has to come out of nothing let's continue a tomb is complete like the number one now remember these ideas are not kind of separate okay we, we've come now to a world which values the separation of church and state and science and religion, right? We, we live in these dualities constantly in the modern world. This is not true of the ancient world, okay? We, we don't have to have dualities because everything is a tomb. Everything is the one primal mind. Everything is God. And these things are not separate from each other they're all interrelated and so language and philosophy and mathematics and science it's all the same thing you just need to know how to interpret it and if you hear but don't listen that's when you start sprouting new and separate dual ideas a tomb is complete like the number one which remains itself with a multiplied or divided and yet generates all numbers i love this because this is the pythagorean thing Right? You can look at the Platonists and the Neoplatonists and the Gnostics. They all have a very similar idea. Okay? Everything stems from the number one. Okay? It's, it's the perfect number. It's one of the perfect numbers. Okay? Because if you multiply it, one by one is still one. You divide it, one divided by one is still one. It's important in like the Fibonacci sequence, for example. The golden ratio. All these things are interrelated. And they're using this ideology, these metaphors, in a philosophical context, which eventually becomes dogmatic, which leads to religion and science. He is one, not two. He is all, not many. The all is not many separate things, but the oneness that subsumes the parts. The all and the one are identical. You think that things are many when you view them as separate. But when you see they all hang on the one and flow from the one, 
you will realize they are united, linked together, and connected by a chain of being from the highest to the lowest, all subject to the will of a tomb. We talked a little bit about this uh, a couple episodes ago. Uh, I think it might have been during my solo meditation retreat episode about understanding that everything that you see in front of you is not separate objects. Okay, we we view them as objects when we should be viewing them as events. These are things that arise from the inherent nature of reality, and they're constantly changing. Even from second to second, from millisecond to millisecond, you are not the same person. Something inside you has changed. What that could be could be anything. Your blood is flowing, right? So your blood's not in the same place. Your cells are growing. They're dividing. They're multiplying. They're dying. You're shedding skin cells. You're going to the bathroom and relieving yourself. Okay? You have different thoughts, different experiences. You're hopefully learning something all the time. You're experiencing new things. There's not a single point in time that you're always the same. You will realize they are united, linked together, and connected by a chain of being from the highest to the lowest, all subject to the will of a tomb. The cosmos is one as the sun is one. The moon is one, and the earth is one. You think there are many gods? That's absurd. God is one. I love the, I love the, the plain language here. I love the plain language. This might be where I, uh, why I say things are absurd all the time. Maybe I've been reading the Hermetica too much. That's absurd. God is one. A tomb alone is a creator of all that is immortal and all that is mutable. If that seems incredible, just consider yourself. You see, speak, hear, touch, taste, walk, think, and breathe. It is not a different you who does these various things, but one being who does them all. To understand how a tomb makes all things, consider a farmer sowing seeds. Here wheat, there barley. Now planting a vine, then apply it, and then an apple tree. Just as the same man plants all these seeds, so a tomb sows immortality in heaven and changes it on earth. Throughout the cosmos, he disseminates life and movement, the two great elements that comprise a tomb in his creation. And so everything that is, a tomb is called Father, because he begets all things. And from his example, the wise hold begetting children, the most sacred pursuit of human life. A tomb works with nature within the laws of necessity, causing extinction and renewal constantly creating creation to display his wisdom. This is really important. This is really important. This is one of those things that I think particularly within modern Western religious tradition, the Judeo-Christian, and when I say Judeo-Christian, I'm going to include Islam in there as well in many regards. There are some similarities, but we'll include them all together. We forget this because we have, we have such a fascination with death. Like, death is the final place, okay? I mean, yes, you know, there's talk of you know, everlasting life, right? Pass away, and, you know, something happens. You go to heaven, you go to hell. These are not inherently Christian ideas. These are, uh, <laughs> these are medieval ideas. There's really no mention of heaven or hell in the Bible in, in that regard, in order to salvation. Uh, there is, of course, talk of... Revelation, where you know Jesus would come back down and create this thousand-year reign of peace. Uh, I'm going to argue at some point in the future when we get there that that's uh, simply a a change in the yuga cycle. Uh, we'll get there. Again, I'm probably going to lose all my listeners when I get to that point. Nah, maybe not. Maybe some of you will be open-minded enough. Hopefully, when I get there. But here we learn there's no difference for for a tomb, right? For this primal mind. This is the way that nature works. Things are created, they grow up, they pass away, and out of that death, new life arises. This is the, the basic concept of the, the Egyptian religion of, of God as the sun. And it's not, of course, inherently Egyptian, but since we're talking about Egypt, we'll stick with the metaphor. This is true of any sun cult, of any religion that worships the sun you get all these metaphors that arise as a result of observations of solar movements in the sky and of the earth's orbit throughout the year around the sun and we've all been told this crazy lie i'm gonna i'm gonna say the words here in a minute we've all been told this crazy lie that everyone in the ancient world thought the world was flat and that the sun revolved or the earth revolved or the sun revolved around the earth that's absurd. 
That's absurd. That's preposterous. No one in the ancient world thought that. If you think you can come up with this kind of cosmology, these kind of deep observations that we didn't regain in modern times until, I don't know, 17th, 18th century, where measurements aren't as accurate as we had in ancient Egypt, in ancient Greece, until the mid-20th century, it's preposterous, it's absurd if you think these people thought the Earth was flat and the sun revolved around this Earth. Preposterous. Yet the things that the eye can see are mere phantoms and illusions. Only those things visible to the eye are real. See, here we go. If you see it, it's real. If you can't see it, it's not. Okay, that's exactly what science says. Okay? There's no world until you have an observer. And you can't have an observer without a thing being observed. So those things are one. Only those things invisible to the eye are real. Above all, the ideas of beauty and goodness. Just as the eye cannot see the being of a tune, so it cannot see these great ideas. They are attributes of a tomb alone. They are inseparable from them. They are so perfectly without blemish that a tomb himself is in love with them. Talking about beauty and goodness. And we're going to dive into... Uh, not only am I going to have this chat with Sandy about why there are no brains, but uh, very, very soon, next month in fact, I'm going to do an episode on why evil doesn't exist. And I know I'm going to lose a lot of you, but here you have it in the Hermetica. All that exists is beauty and goodness. Two aspects of the divine. And, and we'll get there. Because I will argue that all the hatred and violence that you see in the world does not stem from hate because hate is not real. It is an illusion because you, you see everything as dualities. That even those most vile things that you hate, that hate comes from love. We'll get there at some point. There's nothing which, la which a tomb lacks, as nothing that he desires. There's nothing that a tomb can lose, so nothing can cause him grief. Now, I love this because this is a very Zen idea. There's nothing that a tomb can lose, so nothing can cause him grief. Uh, you know, this whole talk you hear in, uh, in New Agey circles and stuff like that about uh, you know, not, not having material possessions, right? And this is not, I mean, necessarily New Agey. We've had uh, you know, monks and fakirs and yogis and people like that for, for thousands of years that practice this, where they, they shun material goods and focus solely on the spiritual. Um, this is kind of what we're talking about here. God doesn't need to worry about any of these things. Okay? There's nothing that's so important that if you lose, will cause him grief. And this is kind of where the idea comes from when you become an ascetic, for example. A tomb is everything. A tomb makes everything, and everything is part of a tomb. A tomb, therefore, makes himself. This is a tomb's glory. He is all creative, and this creative is his very being. It is impossible for him ever to stop creating, for a tomb can never cease to be. A tomb is everywhere. Mind cannot be enclosed, because everything exists within mind. That is so important. Mind cannot be enclosed because everything exists within mind. This is not your human mind. This is the all-encompassing mind, right? If you've been listening to the podcast for a while, I had you do an exercise very early on where I had you think of a, an infinite circle. And I know that I correctly guessed that when I say think of an infinite circle, you automatically just thought of a very large circle. But of course, the thing is, if the circle was infinite, you couldn't picture it. Because by you picturing a circle, you're picturing its boundaries. And if you picture the boundaries, then it's not infinite. And so the same goes for a tomb, for the primal mind, for God. You cannot picture God because God encompasses all things. So if you have some kind of idea of what it is, then you don't get it. Nothing is so quick and powerful. Just look at your own experience. Imagine yourself in a foreign land and quick as your intention, you will be there. Think of the ocean, and there you are. Now, he's talking about imagination here, okay? So every time someone starts talking about, well, you are God, you are it, right? The, the world is an illusion. You create your reality. You get these crazy, stupid ideas like the secret where if people think hard enough and long enough, things come true. Yes, in some respects, that is true. But you're, you're, you're making this into dogma, and it is not dogma, okay? This is the nature of reality, you are constantly creating the world because you are an aspect of God. 
and as a result, you also have the creative mind. You can imagine anything. It doesn't mean you're going to have some literal magic, right? You're not going to do some enchantment, some Hollywood thing, right? Like a Harry Potter thing. I'd say abracadabra. We'll talk about the origins of abracadabra and abracazam at some point. That's really interesting. You don't say the magic words and it comes about. Because if that were true, then you'd be God. You're just an aspect. Okay? So, yes, you can use that imagination to make those things come true. That is the creative aspect of God. But you can't just think about it. I could sit here all day long and think, I'm going to win the lottery. But guess what? If I don't go out and buy a lottery ticket, I'm not going to win the lottery. Okay? This is what we're saying here. You have not moved as things moved, but you have traveled nevertheless. Fly up into the heaven, you won't need wings. Nothing can obstruct you, and the burning heat of the sun or the swir swirling planets pass on to the limits of creation. Do you want to break out beyond the boundaries of the cosmos? For your mind, even that is possible. Again, for your mind. For your mind. You cannot do this in a physical body. Can you sense what power you possess? If you can do all this, then what about your creator? Try and understand that a tomb is mind. This is how he contains the cosmos. All things are thoughts which the creator thinks. Beautiful. Beautiful. How many traditions do we have here? Okay, We're combining many, many different Eastern and Western traditions into this book. This is why this is important. This is why if you have not read the Hermetica, you should read it because it's beautiful. Okay. All right, let's move on to the living cosmos. The primal mind, which is life and light, being bisexual, give birth to the mind of the cosmos. Some of you may have a problem with the language. Listen. Hermes is talking about the essence of the universe. Okay, don't worry about that. But this, this is important because you, you often get this also in many different traditions about the primordial man being a hermaphrodite, okay, being comprised of both male and female. Uh, you know, the, the Romans and the Greeks and really many traditions, including in the Americas, had uh, particular beings, a set of beings, sometimes just a deity that was contained in a half male, half female body, oftentimes with two faces. And this is where it comes from because it's the essence of the divine. Okay, The divine is one infinite, all-encompassing thing. But because we are not infinite, we are just perspectives, when we look at this thing, it automatically becomes two things, a male essence and a female essence. But they are combined into one. Uh, in fact, one of the stories when, when a tomb creates like the first beings, the, the first two gods, uh, he basically jerks off. Uh, <laughs> he jerks off with, uh, I think it's his left hand, which would be the, the female hand. Um, is that it? Maybe it's the right hand. I can't remember. But he jerks off with the, the female hand, and that's how he's able to create life, okay? using his male essence combined with his female half. The primal mind is ever unmoving, eternal and changeless, containing within it the cosmic mind, which is the imperceptible to the senses. The cosmos, cosmos which sense perceives is a copy and an image of this cosmic mind, like a reflection in a mirror. Uh, this is actually really important because this goes even beyond the the general metaphor that we talk about, right? We always talk about if God is infinite, it encompasses all things, and this is true, but how can a being of nothingness create somethingness, and this is how. This is how you get these dualities because this infinite spiritual being is basically creating a mirror copy of himself, and that is the universe that you see around you. Okay? First of all, and without beginning, is a tomb. Second is the cosmos, made in his likeness. And the cosmos is a second god. It is also an immortal being, and because everything in the cosmos is a part of the cosmos, it is impossible that any part of it should die. Again, because it is a tomb. And we, you know, in, in modern science, we have this idea that the world came out of a Big Bang, and uh, the universe came out of a big bang and just it exploded and it's been expanding ever since and at some point it'll either expand to nothingness or it'll begin contracting into nothingness either way the end is nothingness the egyptians had kind of a different cosmology and i think one that makes most sense and i think one that i've discussed previously in the past 
where there's no such thing. There is no expansion. There is no beginning. Okay, it it just always existed. It always existed. And why why does it have to always exist? The reason is simple. That if God is all things in all times, there could be no point in time, again, because there was no time, where God didn't exist. And so the universe is eternal. It has always been here. It will always be here. And really for the sake of our very minute existence on this universe, that's exactly what it is. Because if you're here for 70 years, what tiny, tiny fraction of the entire existence of you know, 14 billion is what scientists say. What tiny fraction of 14 billion is 70 years? It is minuscule. It is insignificant. Insignificant in the entire age of the universe. So by all extended purposes, it's, it's infinite and never-ending. So a couple episodes I talked about this, a couple episodes ago I talked about this, where at what point do you decide enough is enough? Because the world is turtles all the way down and all the way up. So if you find the one turtle, are you going to continue to find the next turtle? What's the turtle made out of? It's made out of more turtles. And the turtle's made out of more turtles. Remember that metaphor? At what point do we stop? The cosmos is all life. From its first foundations, there has never existed a single thing which was not alive. There is not and has never been and never will be anything in the cosmos that is dead. That's true. Even when a physical thing dies, the elements that make up that thing don't disappear. The basic law of science, right? Conservation of energy. Matter is energy, so the energy is always there. It just turns into other things, into other bits of matter. A tomb is light, the everlasting source of energy, the eternal disperser of life itself. Once energy has been dispersed, its supply is governed by eternal cosmic laws. The cosmos has its being within the eternal energy from which all life issues, so it is impossible for it to ever stop or be destroyed. It is contained and bound together by the eternal life force. The cosmos dispenses this life, so all the things within it. It has a twofold movement. Energy is infused into the cosmos from eternity, and in turn infuses life into all things within it. God is infinite energy. It infuses that energy into the universe, and through the mechanism of time, that energy becomes life. Okay, that's what this is saying. God is not an or time is not an inherent property of the universe. It is simply a, a method of change. This is, I mean, if you go really deep into this stuff, this is very modern. Mind and soul are manifestations of light and life. Everything moves by the power of soul. The body of the cosmos within which all bodies are contained is completely saturated with soul. Soul is entirely illuminated by mind, and mind is totally permeated by a tomb. Soul fills and encompasses the whole body of the cosmos. It gives life to the great and perfect living creature which is the cosmos, which in turn gives life to all the lesser creatures it contains. The cosmos is the whole which generates and nourishes the parts like a parent caring for its children. It receives its supply of goodness from a tomb, and it is this goodness which is the true power of creation. The cosmos is the image of a tomb, and since a tomb is all goodness, the cosmos is also good. We're going to dive into that again in a few weeks when we talk about why evil doesn't exist. All right, I think we're going to do, we'll do one more chapter here. We'll do one more chapter and I think I can still do this in a two-part series. It depends. It might end up being three parts. Let's talk about time, the circle of time. This is key because this is the way that the Egyptians viewed time. In a sense, the cosmos is changeless because its motions are determined by unalterable laws, which cause it to revolve eternally without beginning and end. Its parts manifest, disappear, and are created anew, again and again, in the undulating pulse of time. Okay, we talked about this, right? This is the, the tripartite nature of the universe. Actually, I've never talked about this either. <laughs> As a result of my, my psychedelic experience that I talked about uh, recently, uh, I ended up getting this tattoo because I see this in, uh, in, in many trips, and this is how I understood the nature of being to be, during one of these experiences, so I actually um, I wanted to, huh, so I wanted to get this tattoo on the back of my hand, and when I spoke to the tattoo artist, 
he very vehemently asked me not to get it on my hand for professional reasons. And after going back and forth with him for a couple days, we decided fine, and ended up putting it on my forearm. Uh, but uh, but I ended up getting a uh, Pandora's Triangle on my forearm, and he did a beautiful job. I I love the work that he did on it. But to me, it encompassed this very idea of there being no beginning and no end. And if you're not familiar with the Penrose Triangle, uh, go check it out. It's amazing. It is uh, it's a three-dimensional triangle uh, that has no beginning and no end. So if you begin at one on one side and go to the end, it takes you up another side of the triangle, down another side of the triangle, and then that takes you to the back side of the triangle. And you basically go around in infinity. And uh, you know, in, some re in some ways it is related to the infinity symbol, right? That kind of figure eight that, uh, that I'm sure you're all used to. Um, but it, it accentuates this particular idea of, of the tripartite nature of reality. Where you have, you have creation, you have existence, and you have death. And then the cycle begins anew. I love that. So so yes, I do have that tattooed on myself. It's uh it's actually my favorite tattoo that I have. And I have uh 13, 14, I'm not sure, something like that. 13. Through the process of time, life within the cosmos is regulated and maintained. Time renews all things in the cosmos by the circling process of change. This is what time is. It's a process that the universe uses to create change. Measured by the heavenly bodies returning to their former positions as they resolve around the heavens. Now, this is how time would be measured, right, through this movement. And, and I talked a little bit about this during my Sun Limitation Retreat episode, so go check that out if you haven't, uh, in which you can discover that though time is, hmm, this is very weird to say, though time, okay, we'll say it this way, though time appears to be a thing, uh, it is not a thing go go sit in the woods by yourself and stare at the sky for three days and you'll see what i'm talking about the present issues from the past and the future from the present this is this is a very buddhist idea this is a very buddhist idea the present issues from the past and the future from the present there's there's tons of different quotes you can find about the relation of of time uh, some I don't like too much, but they're very true, right? Like uh, he who controls the past controls the present. He who controls the present controls the future, something like that. Uh, you know, there's the one where time is an illusion. Time doesn't exist. The only time that exists is now because the past is created from present experiences and the future are experiences that haven't gotten here yet. Everything is made one by this continuity. Time is like a circle. Now, again, in the West, we don't often see time as a circle. We see time as a straight line, but for many ancient cultures, time was a circle. And when you start thinking of time as a circle, you start getting some really interesting points of view on the way the universe works. We'll leave it at that. Where all the points are so linked that you cannot say where it begins or ends. For all points both precede and follow one another forever. Again, this goes back to the concept of there are no such thing as objects. There are only events. There's no nouns. There's only verbs. This is very hard to convey because there are no languages that can convey a world that is purely made of events. Okay? You actually can have languages that are purely verbs or purely nouns. Uh, I think I talked about one. I think I talked about Kellen, one of the uh, constructed languages that were created that has technically no verbs. Uh, if you dive in kind of deep, that's not true. Uh, it is all nouns, but there are four relational words that kind of serve as verbs. Uh, but I mean, even then, it's, it's a language with, with only four actions. Uh, that's pretty interesting. But there are no languages that have no verbs. There are some, uh, I think in Southeast Asia, there's a couple that, uh, that have no nouns or verbs. They use these kind of uh, abstract words uh, to convey meaning. But in, in essence, the way that they're used in speech and in writing uh, translates to them taking the form of nouns or verbs. All right. Yet there is an even deeper understanding. The past has departed and no longer is. 
The future has not arrived and is yet to be. Even the present does not last. So how can it be said to exist? We just talked about this. Even the present moment is never the present. Because by the time you talk to it, it's already passed. Even the present does not last. So how can it be said to exist when it doesn't stay still for a moment? All right. So I think we're going to wrap this up there. We did about an hour on this. Uh, you know, I'm looking at this. I think we can we can probably do this in, in two parts. Uh, I might make this uh, into a three-part anyway when we get to the last chapter we're going to talk about, which is the secret teachings, because that ties into uh, some ideas that I've had uh, with regards to mystery schools uh, over the past uh, couple of years. So uh, I might make that into a, a separate episode and uh, dive into a little bit of uh, mainly P. Hall as well. I think that could be pretty interesting. But I hope you enjoyed part one of the Hermetica. Originally, I was going to do a different episode for the next one and then come back and do part two. Uh, but because I totally forgot to record this, I am going to be putting out both parts back to back. So uh, on Friday will be the next episode and uh, on Thursday, excuse me. And that will be the Hermetic part two. So if you haven't scrapped yet, be sure to do that. You can, of course, follow me on Twitter at MindAlchemical. You can email Martin at the Alchemical Mind. And, uh, man, I've been playing around with uh, Indra's Web. If you are a listener of the Mind Escape podcast, you may be familiar. Uh, new social network coming out for people that are uh, into this kind of thing, into alternate archaeology and lost civilizations and philosophy and things like that. So uh, really excited for that. Stay tuned for an announcement on it. And uh, you can sign up now. You can go to indrasweb.org and sign up to be put on the waiting list. But it's I've been having a good time there, so look for that soon. That is going to wrap it up for me on this episode, though. Thank you for listening. And as always, always remember that you are it. Mm-hmm.